Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. In the beginning of the 20th century, America's food supply was poisoned with additives such as borax, copper sulfate, and formaldehyde. One man, Dr. Harvey Washington Wiley, decided to do something about it. He formed the Poison Squad, a dozen guys who volunteered to eat increasing amounts of poisonous food additives to gauge the effects on their health. The resulting publicity led to the formation of the FDA. I think the thing that Wiley discovered early on is that nothing gets the attention of the government or the public like a good food stunt. But before we get to poison food with reporter Sruthi Penamanini, I'm chatting with Robin Sloan. His newest novel, Sourdough, brings together the traditions of bread making with the world of high-tech robotics. Robin, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Uh, we are the children of Hogwarts, and more than anything, we just want to be sorted. I kind of like that line from your book, Sourdough. Well, what does that refer to? Well, of course, that's my main character, Lois, who is starting the book in sort of a wavering position. Um, she doesn't know where she belongs in the world. And, uh, you know, she's a young person in the early 21st century. And I think that kind of describes how she feels about the world and, and, and maybe work, trying to find the kind of work that's right for her. So th- this is an interesting book. It doesn't have the usual narrative. It has a number of... Uh, sort of parallel stories going on. Could you just give us the the basic picture of, of the concept of the book? So the story opens with Lois, who's a young software engineer who grew up in suburban Detroit, went to school in Michigan, and she's just gotten a job in the San Francisco Bay Area working at a robot factory. And work is exciting, but it's also demanding. And one of the things that's fallen by the wayside for Lois is eating. And actually, the prospect of feeding herself every day has become really a pretty torturous and overwhelming task. In the face of this, getting enmeshed in the tech scene and trying to figure out how to eat, 
she gets her hands on a mysterious sourdough starter. She actually starts baking bread. And it kind of becomes the key, I guess you could say, that opens the door into the weird, wondrous world of Bay Area food. Let's talk about San Francisco today. So the, the food world is more advanced there than the rest of the country in some ways. Has it, has it gone to another level or evolved to a higher plane than, than the rest of the country? In other words, okay, we had food celebrities and we had Alice Waters and we had, you know, Laura Chanel and goat cheese and everything else. But has, has something else happened in the last five or ten years I'm not aware of where it's, it's evolved to something else? I do think something's happened, and I think that that something is the collision of Silicon Valley and Chez Panisse, you know. Say on one end of the scale, we've got the Bay Area food scene has kind of become this machine for turning people into great eaters. On the other, we've got people trying to create a way to grow meat in a Petri dish, right? We want to have the satisfaction of biting into a hamburger, but we don't want there to be any actual cows involved. So we've got this real, basically like fundamental science in service of deeply new ways of producing food. And it really is coming from this well, this supply of people with technical skills and world-shaping ambition suddenly interested in, you know, this particular world of food and of eating. I, I do have a question, though, another one, which is if you get into the kitchen, ultimately you want to be hands-on up to a certain point. In other words, can, can the kitchen actually evolve in some substantially new way? The old story of the 30s with a cake mix, all you did is add water, nobody bought it. Then they figured out that people wanted to feel like they did something. They said, add an egg, which, which didn't do anything at all for the cake, but it just made them feel better. <laughs> So uh, and so, I, I wonder whether there's, there's a point at which you can't go because people ultimately, as an antidote to the rest of society and the internet and everything else, they want to get their hands dirty. They want to make something. It's about a tool and a whisk and a knife and an oven and a skillet. I think that's right. At the same time, I try to never lose sight of the fact that everything we think of as warm and traditional and familiar in the kitchen today, it was all invented at some point. And maybe that was 100 years ago. Maybe it was 150 years ago maybe a little longer in some cases, but uh, that's not that long in the grand scheme of things. And maybe things are moving faster now too. So I think there's actually great potential for new tools that will seem strange at first and there'll probably be a very weird intermediate period, but then they will indeed seem as natural and as warm as a range does today. Let's talk about the alchemy of cooking and bread. You write about bacteria. They do things that we only dream of. They are fecund and potent. They can speak to one another with chemicals and light. I mean, you speak about that as if they are fully sentient beings <laughs> that have a life of their own in some way that we can't even begin to grasp. Do, do you see alchemy in all of this and mystery? That's certainly part of your book. Is that part of the attraction of food and baking? Definitely of baking, and I would say of sourdough in particular. The fact that you capture this colony, and this is important to me, that it's not just one organism, it's a little stable community of organisms, sometimes two, sometimes more, and that you've either captured it from your neighborhood or maybe gotten a little piece of it from someone else, you're keeping it there in your kitchen, and it just, you know, for me that was the window into this world of microbiology and, and the microbiome, the way these things live in our bodies, not just in our kitchens, but in our bodies too. It was such an interesting 
a really perfect time to be writing that kind of story because it turns out that whole world is opening up to us right now. I really, I really came away from this whole process thinking, wow, we do not realize what, uh, what superpowers these tiny little things have. Robin, sourdough, great book. And thanks for joining us on Milk Street. Thank you. Oh, boy. It's my honor to join you, and I thank you for the invitation. Thanks a lot. That was Robin Sloan, author of the novel Sourdough. Milk Street Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe, download our shows on your phone, and listen anytime. New shows are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. Right now, my devoted co-host, Sarah Moulton, and I will be taking some of your calls. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television and author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready for a new batch of, uh, of phone calls? Yeah, let's take some calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Elaine from Pewaukee, Wisconsin. How are you? I'm excellent. How about you? Great. I love Wisconsin. So how can we help you? Well, I was fortunate enough to live in the hometown of what is now a famous spice house. And I went there many times and picked up new things. And I picked up uh, many years ago some freeze-dried shallots, onions, and garlic. And I've used them for many, many years. And a friend said to me a couple months ago, that I was not getting anything out of those, that there was no flavor and no nutritious value. And I'm wondering what you guys have to say about it. Are you using the same jar that you got three years ago? (laughs) No. I've gone through many, many, many jars. Well, okay. Then then we can't worry about the flavor part of that, I don't think. I mean, what's your opinion? Does it have flavor? I think it does. I don't use the onions very often just because onions, when you cook them, just have such a deep, rich flavor. But the shallots, I really, really love those. But I don't know. I I haven't used fresh shallots for so many years. I'm not sure if I am missing out on something. Well, I think it's a great product to have if you don't have access to fresh shallots all the time and you don't get through them fast enough because this is going to last. The reason Sarah is on the show is someone has to be nice. And Sarah is the (laughs) nicest person in the world. She's never, what she's thinking is, oh my Lord, please throw out the dehydrated stuff. No, I'm not actually, no, I'm not. Would you use dehydrated shallots? No. I might, because they might, they're concentrated. I mean, you have to bring them back to life, I think. Correct, you do. So don't you usually rehydrate them? I wonder if you're using them in a recipe that has liquid anyway, if that would work. First of all, shallots are a pain. Because they're uh, small. Well, sometimes they have the two globes, and you have to yeah. peel both. Although they're a lot bigger than they used to be now yeah, that I think about it. Yeah, but they are kind of a pain. But I love real shallots. I love taking a chicken and just throwing it in a Dutch oven, a little bit of white wine, and about 20 shallots, and just roasting it for an hour you or 10 minutes. You have to peel minutes. them. I've never tried dehydrated shallots. It's probably worth trying. I mean, it's better to use the real thing, but, it, you know... If you're going to have 10 or 15 shallots, it's a pain. Oh, I don't think there's anything to worry about there. In the scope of your whole meal, the nutritional value of the shallots dehydrated or not is not going to make it. I don't think it's that big a deal, no. No. Is your friend a nutrition person? No, just more of a (laughs) know-it-all. I was going to say, or, yeah, (laughs) let me just, if you're happy with your garlics, yeah, yeah, I think you just keep using them. Yes, I'm with that. Okay. Yes. Don't worry about annoying experts like this. No, no. Okay. Okay. Go for it. Thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. Thank you very much. Yeah. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? This is David DiDonato calling you from Charlotte, North Carolina. 
Hi, David. How can we help you today? Chris, I know you've talked about this in the past, and I'd like to get your current opinion and Sarah yours, but what are your views on the use of bay leaves? <laughs> oh, you've been following this for a long time. <laughs> well, you know, I used to say one bay leaf in a stew or a soup isn't going to make much difference, and I will still stick by that. I think if you are infusing a sugar syrup of some kind with well, a lot of flavor going in, maybe. I was objecting to add two bay leaves to two quarts of beef stew. I just find that to be kind of silly. And now Sarah's okay. got that look. Well, so we'll the hear trouble from Sarah is now. this is the great divide between me with my French trading and Chris with his international bent. The one thing I have come to understand is not every culinary bay leaf is the same. So... With bay leaves, I always want to reach for the Turkish, not the California, right. uh, because the California is just way, way, way too strong. But I agree with Chris certainly about the sugar syrup. Yeah. Bay leaves and recruit lime leaves in a sugar syrup, and you add that to lemonade, it is fantastic. But I think bay leaves do have a place in stews. I think they give it, you know, a nice depth of flavor. But the problem is most people have bay leaves that have long lost. That are dead. Yeah, they're dead. Dead, dead, dead. Right. Well, I'm just trying to decide in the finished product, am I even noticing it? It's hard to find a chicken soup recipe that doesn't. They add some bay leaves to it. Yeah, I mean, bay leaves uh, are an herb, and sometimes they're useful, but they should not be ubiquitous. We should not have in, in every stew recipe, which they tend to be in. Well, I disagree with Chris, but so what else is new? I just think I, I just think it's a very personal thing which herbs you like and which you don't. Like some people can't stand dill, and we all know about the anti-cilantro gene. So I think to beat up on bay leaves is sort of silly. I agree about those dead old dusty bay leaves that have been sitting in your drawer forever. But... Let's end with a word from you. What is your last word on the use of bay Yeah. My use of bay leaves is probably going to continue. I just don't know that I've really noticed myself a difference between start and finish if I did or didn't add them to them. So I'm going to have to conduct my own little experiments of tasting things as they go. All All right. right. Thanks for calling. Thanks for your help. Okay. Thank you. This is Most J Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Please give us a ring anytime to chat about food, cooking, your kids, or the weather. That number is 855-426-9843. Once again, 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Uh, this is Marie from Richmond, Vermont. Hi, Marie. What is your question? Well, it wasn't a question so much as a comment. A few weeks ago, I was listening to your program, and a fellow called in and wanted to know why you put butter on top of a pie before you put the top crust on. And that led to a very interesting discussion. And I thought that at the end of it, you kind of determined that you didn't quite know why you did that. And so I wanted to tell you my idea of why you needed to put butter on top of a pie before you put the top crust on. I'm all ears. Think about it. If you're going to make a sauce, what do you do? You make a roux, right, with right. butter and flour and a liquid. Right. So if you've got a pie and you want there to be a sauce with a pie or you want it to thicken up, so what do you do? You put, like, an apple pie. You put in flour. And then you get juice from the apples, so you need the butter then to make the sauce. And so as the butter melts and it cooks in there all together, that's what thickens up the sauce. It's not the flour alone. I think you need the flour and the fat in order to thicken up the sauce. Well, since you're from Vermont, I would love you (laughs) to be absolutely right. But my thinking about the science of this is you have to gelatinize that starch with heat and whisking to make that thicken with the butter. Now, Sarah, 
Marie, have you ever heard of something called a slurry? Yeah. It's another way to thicken a sauce if you don't want to make a roux. Let's say you don't want to add butter to your sauce. You want it to be a leaner sauce. So the way to thicken it is to just take water and flour, whisk it together, and add it to the simmering liquid. Yeah, but the simmering liquid you have might be like meat juices or something that will have fat in it. So I would think you need to have some No, like you can do it. You could take water and thicken it with yeah. a slurry. If you take a pie, what you've got in there is fruit that gives off a lot of liquid, and that liquid combines with the flour. And that's what thickens. But her point is that the butter would additionally help thicken the flour and the juices from the apple. I'm I'm thinking about when you make scalloped potatoes. You put in a layer of potatoes, and then you sprinkle flour over it, and then you pat it with butter, and you put more potatoes and more flour and more butter, and then you pour milk over the whole thing. And at the end, you get this nice sauce. Yeah, but most of that thickening is coming from the starch and the potatoes, probably. You think so? Yeah. Yeah, I really think... Um, no, but it's, I no. don't know. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I think you have a good point, and I don't think we actually know the answer. We had to do an apple pie. We should do one with two tablespoons of flour and no butter, and one with two tablespoons of flour and two tablespoons of butter. I find, though, that if I do an apple pie and the apples are really juicy, I might add a tablespoon or two of flour and if you just let it sit long enough and it cools down, it will thicken. But, hey, listen, the butter's going to be better for flavor, too, so why not? i terrified to cook without the butter in the pie. I don't think my husband would still stay married to me if I cooked a blueberry pie without the butter in it. So I'm not going to risk it. You guys can do that. I don't change. It's risky business. Don't change. Okay. Thanks for calling. We'll do the test, and we'll let you know what happens. Okay, thank you. Yeah, take care. Bye. See, aren't Vermonters great? Oh, I love Vermonters. You just, they're not going to stand down. No, 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 no. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up in just a bit, my conversation with Sruthi Penamanini about the poison squad and why 12 healthy young men volunteered to eat borax and other poisons as part of their regular diet. Coming up after the break. 
They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Milk Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Picture this. It's the winter of 1902. We're in Washington, D.C., in the basement of a government building. Twelve young men, boys really, are sitting down to dinner. Their suits are neatly pressed and their mustaches are stiff with wax. Waiters are serving them courses like chipped beef, turnips, and celery on toast. But there's a problem with all this fancy food. It's been spiked with an unidentified poison. The men know this, but they go ahead and eat everything on their plates. The newspapers have a name for these guys. They are the Poison Squad. In 1902, Dr. Harvey Washington Wiley began a series of experiments. Twelve healthy young men ate three square meals a day, each of them laced with poisonous food additives, commonly found in food products of the day. Did they all survive? Did they have lasting health problems? And what did Dr. Wiley actually discover through this gruesome experiment? Today on our show, we have Sruthi Penamanini here, who produced a piece on Wiley and the Poison Squad for PRX. Sruthi, how are you? I am very good. Well, let's play a, a game. I'll sing a little song, and you can identify it. All right. On prussic acid, we break our fast. We lunch on a morphine stew. We dine with a matchhead consomme. <laughs> drink carbolic acid brew. Uh, wh- where's that mm-hmm. from? That is from a, a poem that was penned about the Poison Squad many years ago. I believe, was it published in the Washington Post? the first time? I mean, there were a bunch of these that came out around that time. It's, I think, one of the most fascinating stories when it comes to food history. Basically, these 12 young men, they were all clerks in the Bureau of Agriculture, and they were led to this experiment by this pretty brilliant man, uh, the chief chemist at the time, Dr. Harvey Washington Wiley. And basically, Wiley, who came from Indiana, he'd grown up on a farm, was very, very invested in what he called pure foods. Um, you know, butter that was actually butter and and real sugar and vegetables that hadn't been contaminated with any kinds of chemicals. And he found that when he moved to the big city, that this was the turn of the century and more and more people were putting all kinds of things to keep food from rotting or more often than not, hiding the rottenness of the food. And so Wiley was convinced that this was bad for people. But remember, at that time, nobody is testing this. Like, the government is not tasked with protecting people from additives and foods. And so Wiley is running around the bureau. Um, He's the chief chemist, and he's trying to get people's ears on this subject, like saying, hey, I think this is really, this is a big problem. Now let's play a clip from the story. This is Melanie Warner. She wrote a book about processed food called Pandora's Lunchbox. 50% of all Americans now lived in cities. They had moved off the farm. So they had to rely on other people that they didn't know, strangers, companies, to produce their food. 
the food lobby was already pretty powerful. And Wiley wasn't getting any traction. And so he decided to take matters into his own hands in this very weird, but I guess visionary way where he said, you know what, Uh, just give me $5,000, Congress, and I'll do this on my own. I will get 12 able-bodied men, volunteers, and I will show you the effects of these specific poisons. Like we'll, you know, we'll do a very scientific style trial. Let's just play that part of the story here. By this point, Wiley was 37 years old. He was working as state chemist of Indiana. He starts using this thing called a polariscope, which is basically a microscope that uses a special light source. He points his lens at this golden liquid from a tin labeled pure maple syrup of Vermont and sees that... Maple syrup has been displaced by glucose. Cheap glucose from corn, nothing like the stuff that oozes out of a maple tree. In a can of green peas, he finds... Sulfate of copper to give them a vivid green color. Even pumpkin pie wasn't pumpkin pie anymore, but... Mashed turnip, colored yellow, with a natto. So if you could set the scene, this is in the basement. This is of a federal building or in a house, and uh, they're sitting around one table. They have a chef. Uh, What does it look like? So the pictures that you see, it's in the basement of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which still exists in D.C., and it was a formal setting. Uh, So in the photographs that were published, there's um, you can see these young men wearing bow ties and their dinner jackets. You see Wiley kind of standing (laughs) proud in the middle of uh, of the whole squad. So so some of the stuff wasn't dangerous. I mean, people would use instead of maple syrup or honey, glucose syrup, uh, olive oil was cottonseed oil or hazelnut oil or something else. Um, But. Uh, they used, let's just talk about some of the more toxic uh, copper sulfate to give a green color in pickles. Uh, I think there was also arsenic and some hard candies, mm-hmm. uh, morphine and baby syrups. So yep. there, there were actual toxins, at least this was Dr. Wiley's uh, yep. proposition. Some of the additives could actually be harmful, not just mm-hmm. inaccurate in terms of what was uh, they were saying yeah. they were selling. And my favorite, and this is actually, I think, I could say Wiley's first obsession was borax, where people would mask the quality of the meat or eggs, specifically meat, by putting borax in it to just just hide that the flesh was actually disintegrating. And I mean, this is one of those things where maybe borax by itself isn't that bad, but you could get sick from eating bad meat. And also, Wiley would discover maybe the borax itself wasn't (laughs) that great for you either. Let me ask about the volunteers. These guys agreed to do this. They uh-huh. signed away. They wavered any any liability, so they, they couldn't sue the department. Yeah. And so what did they do? They, they just ate three meals a day that were laced with borax and other chemicals? So Wiley was a really committed scientist. He was a very meticulous, almost obsessive man. You can almost see it in his handwriting. Um, and he has just tons and tons of notebooks from that period. And you can see he put these men through a certain kind of hell because once they agreed to be in the experiment, it wasn't just, okay, you agreed to eat these three square meals in the basement. This All these, um, they had to live and eat uh, in the basement of the Department of Agriculture. So it wasn't just about the meals. It was also, they had to be weighed before every meal. Uh, they had to give stool samples every day. 
And in December 1902, the experiments began. The men lived and ate in the Bureau of Chemistry. A chef prepared the meals. Roast lamb, 66 grams, potatoes. And Wiley would spike these meals. Peas, 50 grams. With increasing doses of borax. I gather peaches were used as dessert. Canned peaches, of course. Everyone had to submit all their bodily fluids, their uh, stool samples, urine samples, uh, pretty much daily. Wiley even built a special fecal drying machine to analyze the piles of evidence he was collecting. With number five, the constipation has given way to looseness of the bowels. Four so this is the part that's really interesting, which is that um, after all 20 years of trying to rein in the industry, yeah. Wiley and his 12 associates become wildly popular in the press. People are following their meals. And three mm-hmm. years later, four years later, 1906, they actually get the Pure Food and Drug Act passed under Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt. So mm-hmm. how did that happen? It was just an amazing outcome with a $5,000 budget in the first year. Yeah, I think what happened was once the press got wind of it, it was obviously such a fun story to follow. I saw in one of his notes that a reporter had been caught getting news about the poison squad through the window of the basement. <laughs> uh, like a chef was sort of passing on the secret goings ons <laughs> inside the dining room. And, you know, all of these things like the menus we published, um, that minstrel uh, song that you read in the beginning, like things like that were written. And people were really. It was almost like um, a soap opera, like kind of this lurid fascination with this thing that was happening. Of course, there were some people who were upset, but most people were just, you know, just couldn't believe that this was happening. And all that attention, though, he did, Wiley did, I think at some point, realize that that would be maybe even more powerful than the science itself. So I think it was a combination of all the press he got and his findings that really got that act Passed in the end. In 1914, he co-authors a good housekeeping expose on obesity called Swindled Getting Slim. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, this is like 100 years ago, and uh, yeah. they're still out there in the market. I mean, and we still have lobbying problems with big food. This was the, the precursor to Supersize Me. I mean, yeah. that's exactly what, you know, what that movie was about, about yeah. eating McDonald's three times a day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was also, I don't know if it was effective, but certainly got a lot of publicity. Yeah. I think the thing that Wiley discovered early on that um, you can see in Supersize Me again is that nothing gets the attention of the government or the public like a good food stunt. Yes. We live in a world where you have to put yourself at grave risk of death in order to get some kind of publicity. I think that's yeah. probably true. So uh, he starts this in 1902, Dr. Wiley. In 1906, mm-hmm. the Pure Food and Drug Act is passed under Teddy Roosevelt, who was fairly anti-big company, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we could argue about the long-term success, but that was an amazing story. In four years, he, he overcame the lobbyists and got this thing passed. That's, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. He changed the way we think about food. We changed the way we think about what we deserve to know about our food when we're buying it in a supermarket and not getting it, you know, from a farmer. And Wiley himself could not have put it better. I've always stood for food that is food. I'm just not going to dress up in black tie with a bow tie and eat borax. But that's, you know, yeah. that's, that's just me. Well. Sruthi, thank you so much. Thank you. Great story. Uh, thank you. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. Thank you. That was Sruthi Penamanini, who originally produced the story for PRX. 
She's now a producer and reporter at Gimlet Media's Reply All. The days of science being conducted by curious individuals may be over, but Dr. Wiley of the Poison Squad reminds me that one man or one woman can actually make a difference. Take Galileo. He carved a groove down the center of a board 20 feet long. He propped it at an angle and timed how quickly two balls rolled down the track. What he discovered was that the distance the ball travels is proportional to the square of the time that has elapsed. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's a bedrock scientific formula regarding time and distance, and it was discovered with a few simple props. Maybe science really is that simple. A curious mind, a thought experiment, a few props, and eureka, we advance quickly into the future. Right now, I'm heading over to the kitchen in Milk Street to chat with Milk Street's Lynn Clark about this week's recipe. Hey, Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. So one of our editors, Jen Lai, just got back from Poland, one of our magazine editors, and she was uh, looking for authentic Polish gingerbread, which is very peppery. So she went to a small town, which is sort of the Disney world of gingerbread. Everyone dresses Ooh, up fun. in very festive clothes. Uh, but she discovered that uh, in Poland, gingerbread's a big deal. Uh, it's often the dough sits for sometimes years before they bake it off. It's a little bit odd. But she loved the flavor. It was very different than what we're used to here. So she brought the recipe back, and we brought it into the kitchen. And is it ju- is just the pepper in the recipe that's different, or is, are there other things that make it distinctive? Well, the pepper is definitely a big part of this gingerbread recipe. The other element is that the base of this is honey, not molasses. So it doesn't have that really strong flavor that you get from molasses. It's also lighter in color. So the honey is in here for a couple of reasons. We've got a lot of spice here. There's actually a teaspoon and a quarter of black pepper in this, which makes it not just a spiced cookie, but a spicy cookie. We add these spices, which in addition to the pepper, cardamom and cinnamon, and we add those spices to hot honey and butter. What that does is kind of bloom the spices so that that honey is infused with those flavors. It also allows us to get those spices distributed pretty evenly in this cookie dough. When we're talking about honey here, we really liked buckwheat honey, which has sort of the similar flavors of molasses, but not nearly as strong. You can use clover honey. You just want to steer clear of any honey that has any floral notes to it. Those are a little too weak to stand up to the spiciness of the cookie. So is this a a crispy wafer cookie? Is this a thick sort of moist, chewy gingerbread? What is it? It's almost in the middle of the two. Uh, It's got crisp edges, but a kind of more dense and chewy center. So when Jen was in Poland, she found that the dough sometimes sits for years. Uh, I assume that um, we're not going to wait years to roll out and bake out this dough. Nobody wants to wait years for a cookie. We let the dough sit in the refrigerator for two hours. Uh, It can sit there for up to a day. Because we are able to distribute those spices better through the dough with the honey and they're bloomed in that honey, we don't need to let it sit to develop that flavor. However, this cookie is great made ahead. You can bake it ahead of time. It actually gets better as it sits, which makes it perfect for the holiday time. So it's a spicy cookie, not a spice cookie because of all the pepper in it. A lot of honey. Uh, You bloom the spices in the honey and you can make it ahead. Right, and you can dress it up for the holidays, roll it in turbinado sugar, or drizzle it. We have a great espresso glaze. It's just a simple powdered sugar glaze with espresso powder. Um, just drizzle it over the top, and it's a really pretty but simple holiday cookie. And you can also drizzle that on your toast. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Lynn, thank you. You're welcome, Chris. You can find our recipe for gingerbread pepper cookies at 177milkstreet.com. 
I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up after the break, I'll be taking more of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. I'm here with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, how are you? I'm great, Chris, and I think it's time to get to the phones. Welcome to uh, Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Carrie from Gainesville, Florida. How are you? Good, great, thanks. So I have a question about baking. My sister and I like to bake a lot of quick breads and muffins, and we've always wondered how far in advance can you mix the dry and the wet ingredients? Like, is the leavening affected at all if you go ahead and mix them and then say wait a couple hours? Yeah, if you mix it all ahead of time for a biscuit, for example, or muffin, and wait a couple hours, then you can throw the batter out and, and start over again because the baking powder, for example, it reacts to liquid, the presence of liquid. It also reacts to heat over 120 to 30 degrees in the oven. So you'll get the first stage of that reaction going when it's in contact with the milk or buttermilk or whatever you're using. There are certain batters, though, that actually should sit for a while, like if you're making English pudding of some kind, like under a roast. That stuff should sit. It's just English really, pudding under a roast? What the heck is you know, that? You, know, you mean popovers? Yeah. Popovers. But popovers, popovers have no leavener in but them. But they have milk and they have flour. They have eggs. And eggs. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so those are okay. But chemical leavener interacts with liquid. It's just, so double acting essentially means it acts with liquid. Then it will also act puff at up in oven, the oven temperature. Yeah. So what you do is you just keep the two things separate. You keep your dry and your wet separate. And then when it's time to make the you know biscuits or whatever you're making, muffins, quick breads, you just then you combine them. Mixing the wet and the dry is supposed to be very quick too. You don't want to overdevelop the gluten. So I don't think that will slow you down much. No, actually, we tested in Milk Street about four months ago. There was a recipe that said make the batter and let it sit in the muffin tins for a while first even overnight in the refrigerator? What? Yeah, we did. It was not a disaster, but it was also not a success. No. No, no, but someone suggested that, and it didn't work. Yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes it's good that we have empirical evidence so we can say with great authorita that you should not... um, Authoritas. Yes. Toss. Yes. Whatever. (laughs) Tut. That you should not mix all these things uh, together. So, But but you can get everything ready ahead of time, like the... As Sarah said, so it's mix it's the dry, mix take you the three wet. minutes yeah. to dump and stir. Yeah, I agree. So then, are cookies a little bit different? Cookies, yeah. Well, cookies, absolutely. You can make logs of like sugar cookies, for example, or butter cookies. You can actually leave those in the freezer, and you can cut off what you want and bake them off, and that's a really good idea. Why do they work and quick breads don't? Because a sugar cookie isn't leavening very much. There's a very little bit of yeah. leavener. It's not a batter; it's a dough. It's very different. Yeah, but there is leavener, but it's a very little bit. Right. So you're not looking for like a souffle chocolate chip cookie. So I guess that's the diff. Yeah. Okay. Okay, great. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank My you. pleasure. Thank you. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Kathy from Minneapolis. Hi, Kathy. What is your question? You know, uh, in the Midwest here, I get oysters maybe twice a year from a truck that comes up from Galveston, Texas, and they are in a container. I would like to know what I can do with these oysters besides deep fry them or put them in a stew. I'm a pretty good home cook, but I would like to have a recipe that 
is not something like oysters Rockefeller that kind of dominates the oysters the spinach does, but something that is less caloric than the things I've been doing with oysters because they're so precious we don't get them very often here. Can I ring the name-dropping bell? Of course you can. <laughs> the first time I met Julia Child, I interviewed her in the early 80s, and uh, she made an oyster stew yes. for us for lunch. And that would be my number one thing to do with a whole bunch of oysters. An oyster stew would be number one, right? Okay, now you can do the healthy one. Okay. Let me just ask you, are these oysters of a quality that you could eat them raw? No, they've been shocked. They're not farmed. They're wild oysters. Let me just throw out this. You could do a traditional recipe and just do a lighter version. Like you could maybe do a jambalaya, but use maybe Canadian bacon instead of sausage. Or you could do, I have a recipe for uh, beer battered sautéed shrimp. Sautéed, not deep fried. Yes. So you still get the crunch on the outside. And you just need a good nonstick pan. And you make a beer batter, you know, which is roughly equal parts beer and flour. And right. you just dip the oysters first in a little bit of flour and shake them off. And then into the beer batter. And you could add garlic to the beer batter and other flavorings if you right. want. And then just barely film a pan with some oil and then just saute them. You're frying oysters no. with a batter. No, we're sauteing okay, them. Okay, saute. I'm just going to say you have two choices. Freshly shucked oysters, if you have them, should be eaten raw and relatively unadorned, right? I mean, that's just the best thing. How about this idea? I once saw Jacques Pepin do the oysters right in their own liquor. And, you know, these oysters that are packed from Galveston do come in a lot of very viscous liquor. And I'm wondering if I could just kind of poach them in that and then... Why is it viscous? I don't know. You eat an oyster on the half shell. It's not viscous. Is there any way of finding out? Yeah, from... maybe they pack them in something. Yeah. I would find out if there are any additives and preservatives yeah, in there. And if there aren't, I'd say go ahead and poach them in that with a little white wine and shallots and what the heck, as Chris said later on, add some cream and, you know, be happy. You want to find out what they are. I don't trust viscous liquid. I never thought of that. Why would it be viscous? No. That's no. Weird. It sounds like there's some preservative or something there. Yeah. But I would check that out. And, and I would still, okay. I think deep fried oysters are one of the best things ever. I mean, come yeah, on, Sarah. Aside from raw. Aside from okay. raw. That's their second best. All right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. Goodbye. This is Most J Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Please give us a ring anytime. That number is 855-426-9843. Once again, 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, this is David Anderson from Bemidji, Minnesota. How are you? Oh, pretty good. I have a question concerning um, some spices I bought this summer. I have a bunch of sumac and Urfa Bieber that mm-hmm. I bought for making kofta. Yep. And I know that you've been saying that you use it in your pantry. Yep. And you had a gale from Turkey that's been using Urfa Bieber. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, what else can I use it for? Well, let's start with sumac. Sumac is citrusy, as you know, kind of sour. It's almost a substitute for lemon in the Middle East. Uh-huh. The best dish I know is masakan, which is uh, from Palestine, Middle East. It's a sumac chicken, and they use two or three tablespoons of the sumac on okay. the chicken. We did a recipe for that in Milk Street a couple issues ago. It's easy to make. Uh, it has nuts in it, some other things. But it's a very, very delicious recipe, often served on pita bread or flatbread 
Urfa is a very earthy pepper flavor, and uh, we like it on grilled meats and vegetables. A lot of these things go well on hummus, you know, if you make hummus. Uh, we did right. a recipe for that a while ago. We did have a variation, which is quickly cooked ground lamb or beef. It takes about 10 minutes in a skillet. And you could use uh, Urfa on that and then okay. top the hummus with it. And that's a typical serving in the Middle East. Uh, oh, that sounds delicious. Which is really delicious. Okay. And you can almost make dinner out of that. Okay. Sarah? I'm more familiar with sumac. I did buy some Urfa years ago and didn't play with it enough. And clearly I should go back and check it out again. But mm-hmm. sumac I can address. Um, I'd say anywhere that you would like to use lemon, you can use sumac. So places that really call out for it, like fish. You could use it in marinades. You could put it in vinaigrette. I bet okay. you'd be terrific in eggs. I yes. add uh, lemon zest, and I bet sumac would be wonderful too. So anywhere you want brightness. Or, you know, let's say you're making a, an aioli, put it in there to brighten okay. it up. Um, yeah, I have quite a bit of it. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to have any problem using it up. Wherever you would use lemon, use sumac. I know it's very tart. Yes, but that's nice. I'll just have to experiment with it. A lot of these things go very well when you have a super stew and you want sort of a base layer of flavor, especially a meat okay. stew. Something like Urfa Bieber would be great as sort of a fundamental seasoning, and you can put some lighter things on top of it. I always think of spices as being sort of the foundation layer of flavor with whatever okay. the potatoes, meat, with a chicken, and then herbs or ginger or garlic or something sort of gives you the top notes. So I like fresh herbs and rich spices go together really well. Okay, good. All right. Oh, give me some ideas. Okay. All right, thanks for Thank, calling. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Bye. Bye now. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now it's time for this week's Mill Street Basic. This week's Mill Street Basic is how to turn a can of chickpeas into a snack. Now, most of the time when we call for chickpeas, we use dried chickpeas. The smaller, the better, by the way. We soak them overnight with salted water. It absorbs the water and the salt for flavor, and you get the perfect texture when you finish cooking them in a soup or a stew. But there are times when you can begin with a can of chickpeas, and here's one of them. Take one can of chickpeas, drain them well, take some paper towels, put them on a half baking sheet, and roll them around on the towels to make sure they're absolutely dry. Meanwhile, heat up a skillet with a tablespoon of virgin olive oil and get the oil to the point it's just starting to shimmer. Add the dried chickpeas to the pan, fry until lightly brown, that takes just a few minutes, and then toss with kosher or coarse salt, some black pepper, some smoked paprika, and a pinch of sugar. So in about 10 or 15 minutes, you can take a can of chickpeas and turn them into a fabulous snack. Today, Dr. Aaron Carroll, a frequent contributor to Milk Street, weighs in on the issue of artificial sweeteners versus sugar. Carol's a professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a frequent contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. Dr. Aaron Carroll, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Uh, Artificial sweeteners. It's the one food I think is radioactive in my life, but you may wish to disagree. You are not alone, I will say. Uh, There is no topic which has gotten me more anger and hate than trying to defend artificial sweeteners. Uh, it was easily uh, the most hate mail that I've gotten when I wrote about this in the past because people really think that these things are the devil. So the science tells us that they're not, right? They're not. And first of all, we should start off with the fact that most people are making a decision between whether or not to eat artificial sweeteners or whether to eat sugar. Uh, and you got to own that like the evidence against sugar is 
pretty, pretty strong. There's a lot of added sugars in our diet in the United States, and there's a fairly decent amount of evidence that that is not good for us. Uh, it's certainly not providing any kind of nutrition to us. And it's hard to argue that all of those empty calories are good for us, especially since so many people seem to be suffering from uh, overweight or obesity. So there's a pretty strong case against sugar. So if you're making the case, you know, am I going to drink one or the other? The case against artificial sweeteners is very weak. Uh, and so if I had to choose, and, and this is what I wrote that got me into so much trouble, I would rather my child drink a diet soda than a sugared soda. Now, I remember back in the 70s, whenever there was something about a particular artificial sweetener that had some relationship to cancer. Uh, am I remembering correctly? Yeah, this is exactly the problem, is that everybody sort of knows deep in their heart without knowing the details that their artificial sweeteners cause cancer. You're probably thinking of saccharin. Right. And so right. back in the 70s and 80s, there, there was a lot of concern that saccharin uh, was causing cancer. And so they started to do studies, and they would get a bunch of rats together, and they would give them tons of saccharin, and they did a lot of studies, and they could detect no increased rates of cancer. Then what they did was they gave rats tons of saccharin, and then the babies born to those rats also tons of saccharin, and they found in a few studies, and I mean a minority of them, some of the rats in the second generation got bladder cancer. But that was enough for us to start throwing you know, labels on things and warnings and say, you know, saccharin, it's been proven that, that, that this artificial sweetener was causing cancer, and Everybody freaked out, and they actually banned it in, in some European countries, and it became a big concern. Years later, what they found was that if you give rats lots of almost anything, including vitamin C, they get cancer, especially bladder cancer. <laughs> We've never been able to prove that in humans. They've done studies in monkeys. They did one study where they gave, um, I think it was a bunch of monkeys, an unbelievable amount of saccharin every day for 17 years, and they could detect no significant link between the saccharin and any kind of cancer. And you got to respect anyone that's going to, you know, run a study where they're going to feed saccharin to monkeys every day for 17 years. <laughs> We're not going to get better studies than that. Since then, they've taken most of those warnings off because there is no link to cancer in humans. And then we shifted our focus to aspartame, and we started getting panicked that it was causing brain cancer. And we would see studies that would say, oh, there's been an increase in the rate of brain cancer, and aspartame has become more popular, therefore aspartame causes brain cancer. Well, that's the worst kind of study right. you can do. And when they went back and looked at the data, they found that almost all of that increase was in elderly people who are not the major consumers of diet soda. And that um, there was nothing other than the timing of the link to, to do it. We've done randomized controlled trials now of this stuff. We have done big prospective studies. We can detect no increases in any real diseases, no increases in migraines, no increases in ADHD, no increases in other behaviors, no increases in cancer, no increases in almost anything moving forward. And to boot... They've done some prospective randomized controlled trials where they will randomize people to get diet soda versus like regular soda, and they find that the people in the diet soda lose more weight. So what evidence we have shows no harm and a potential benefit, I would, I would push artificial sweeteners first. If sugar is bad for us, let's say it leads to diabetes, is there evidence that artificial sweeteners are less harmful? Than sugar? There was a big study in Nature a couple years ago that, that claimed that artificial sweeteners had been 
linked to diabetes. But if you look at that study, it was in rats looking at like the microbiome. So they were doing experiments where they tried transferring the bacteria in guts from one rat to another. They would try eradicating it, then they'd feed them artificial sweeteners or feed them sugar, and they detected slight differences in insulin sensitivity or some laboratory effects. Well, first of all, we have no idea still how the microbiome works. That's a short-term insulin sensitivity. That is not the same thing as developing diabetes. They did finally one study of six adults, I believe, for seven days looking at the same kind of thing. Does their microbiome change when we give them artificial sweeteners? But it was a mix of artificial sweeteners, and we have no reason to believe that all of those different molecules would react the same way. They're very different. It's a very confusing, limited study. And yet again, I would say we have massive amounts of both epidemiologic data as human beings consume this stuff en masse across the world, and we have large prospective randomized control trials in human beings. We should not give the weight of small animal studies or small studies of six people for a week much more weight than those huge studies we've already done. There's still no real good evidence that artificial sweeteners are dangerous. There's pretty good evidence that sugar is. And so if you were making a choice, I'd still come down on the side of having an artificial sweetener. Dr. Aaron Carroll, thank you so much. Anytime. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll, professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a frequent contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. Okay, I admit it, I don't like artificial foods, but what I like even less are fraudulent foods. How about Erzatz crab meat? It's actually made from the pulverized paste of white fish flesh. Wasabi's often made from horseradish, mustard, and green food coloring. And those bacon bits that are actually vegan, they're made from textured soy flour and caramel colors. So when it comes to artificial sweeteners, I have one good thing to say. At least they're not frauds. They have to say right in the package, that they are artificial. Thanks for listening this week. If you just tuned in and missed our show, you can listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, head to 177milkstreet.com. You can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our first season of Milk Street Television, or order the Milk Street Cookbook. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers, Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer, Amy Padula. Associate producer, Carly Helmetag. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Our theme music is by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.